I want to title this sermon, just two words, under pressure. Under pressure. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and mercy towards us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and all that he has done on our behalf. And we thank you for your spirit that seals that goodness in us. Father, I ask for that same spirit now to give me preaching power, to help me speak the truth and nothing but. Lord, I pray that your word would also fall on fresh soil. And that if there is someone here who does not know you, Lord, would they react to the word of God preached. In Jesus' name, amen. When God's people act like God's people during intense moments of pressure, their lives will be a powerful and prophetic picture of God's grace to an unbelieving world. I'm going to try this side now, okay? (laughs) When the church is being the church, the world will take us serious. That's it. I could close the sermon right there. That's all I need to say. But for the next few moments together, I want to argue something different. I must admit that I had trouble studying and preparing this sermon. This was a hard week looking at these two verses. I struggled with how to apply these words to us living in the 21st century. I also struggled because of the language that Paul chooses to use in these first two verses. As a black Christian, these two verses are somewhat problematic. These words, slaves and masters, instantly incited painful emotions due to a history that still haunts people who look like me every day. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 was one of the primary passages used to justify American chattel slavery. It was used to justify the European industrial complex of slave trading. It was this text that was deployed as a kind of theological whip and chain to break the spirits of dark-skinned folk. This text was used to rob the dignity of black persons during centuries of white, Western, and might I add, Christian-led slavery. Many will argue that slavery was defended primarily because of economical and societal benefits. I argue that slavery was primarily defended because of theological belief. White slave owners weaponized the Bible to be their primary witness while testifying that God would be their judge and juror and executor of racially based chattel slavery. And when we, us, when we come to the scriptures, you and I bring our whole self. We bring our minds. We bring our hearts. We bring our physical bodies. 
And so when I see the words slaves and masters, I begin to formulate different questions about God and his character than those who don't look like me. This was the same feeling of Nancy Ambrose. In fact, her response was even more critical. Nancy was the grandmother of Howard Thurman, author of Jesus and the Disinherited. And Howard Thurman was a sort of precursor to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In fact, it is said that Dr. King always kept a copy of Jesus and the Disinherited on his person wherever he went. Grandma Nancy was born a slave, lived on a plantation, and when Howard was young, she would task him with reading the Bible to her. Young Howard would read to her passages from the Psalms, Isaiah, the Gospels, but never did he read to her passages from Paul's letters. Why not, you may ask? Well, because during her days as a slave, the master would hold services for his slaves and would have the white preacher only preach passages just like ours this evening. Therefore, she had a tough time believing these words because, you know, the, the God that she had came to know and love and worship was vastly different than the one she was hearing preached to her in those moments. That is to say, what we think about God really does matter. The way you live is often a direct reflection of who you think God is. And according to these white slave owners, and according to past and some current American theologies, God was pro-slavery. So much so that he instituted it himself. Well, if that was the belief of God, then therefore these white slave masters reflected this in their lives because their theology told them so. And by historical consequence, this is, this same way of thinking was taught and practiced post-Civil War, well into Jim Crow. It still has its remnants in our world in 2021. Oh, but God, that's right, Jalen, but God, what America tried to use as a weapon, the real God of the Bible used as a means of grace. Don't worry, I promise I'm going somewhere. Even though white slave masters and slave folk who look like me by way of manipulating and twisting God's word, God's word still fell on fresh soil. That's right, what American slavery tried to use as oppression, God stepped in and used as freedom. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. And I would be remiss not to put on record that the God of the Bible does not condone slavery of any kind. In fact, he is a God that liberates all from any kind of oppression. And as Charlie Dace would say, he did it all by himself. This may, be not, may not be good news to you, but this is good news to me. The same God who freed a bunch of slaves out of Egypt is the same God that brought salvation to black people before they were kidnapped and brought to these shores. And he brought salvation to them while they were living in chains on these shores. That's the reason I can confidently come away from reading a passage like ours tonight and be assured that God does care about people who look like me. 
But not just me. Oh, no. It wouldn't be a sermon if it was just about me. He cares for you, too. The position that I'm arguing for is one that is congruent with the God we see revealed to us in the scriptures, not the one slave masters and others who misappropriated for their own bidding. It is a position that leading New Testament scholar, Dr. Esau Macaulay, calls a black ecclesial hermeneutic. When you read Paul's words in light of the entire Bible, or, or canonically of sorts, you will come away with a vastly different interpretation than those of yesteryear. But you will also possess a powerful, prophetic witness for your life today. Watch it now. Don't miss it. When the yokes of life begin to weigh you down, walking with God faithfully will be freedom for your own soul and a picture for freedom for others. That's it. That is the word picture of our verses in 1 and 2. Paul in verse 1 is urging Christians who are under temporal and earthly yokes to remain faithful. Not perfect, but faithful in the midst of their struggle because the world is watching. And here's a brother who knew a thing or two about earthly chains and yokes. Not only was he a former, excuse me, persecutor of Christians, but after his conversion in Acts 9, Paul would go on to live the majority of his life in chains. On the face of verse 1, it would seem as though Paul is emotionally and culturally tone deaf. Who wants to show respect to those who have made them a slave? Who wants to show humility and, 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 and be kind to those who enslaved them? Oh, but if you just dig a little deeper, you start to see why Paul could say such a thing. Just early in chapter 1 of our same book, 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul declares that the law, meaning God's word, is good, but only if it's used lawfully. Then he goes on to point out that those who do that, or, or those who don't use it lawfully, the lawless, and right in the middle of verse 10, Paul includes the word, the Greek word, andropotism. Andropotesis, Greek for kidnapper. Keep going, walk with me, don't tune me out yet. The very people in chapter 6 that Paul is urging these Christians to show respect towards is the same people he is calling out in chapter 1. Clearly, Paul does not condone slavery, but it keeps getting better. I have to believe that as Paul is pinning these words to paper, his very testimony is flooding his own memory. You remember that encounter in Acts 16? Paul and Silas were on their way to a prayer convention. And when on the way, the Bible says that they ran into a slave girl who possessed a demon. And this demon brought good fortune to her own masters. And basically, she could predict the numbers to the Kentucky Lottery. That was her good fortune. But Paul, being who he is, commanded that that spirit come up out of her. But the slave masters who were watching just witnessed the power of God snatched their retirement fund right out of their hands. This young girl was freed. Better yet, she was liberated. The moment Paul uttered the words, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. 
Paul was demonstrating Jesus in front of folk that hated God. And I know, I know, I know we're Presbyterian. I know we don't like to talk much about the power of the Holy Spirit. I forget how sophisticated and educated you are. But here's what your degrees and your sophistication can't do. They can't give you power. There is no book, no systematic theology, no form of catechism or confession of faith that can fully explain or capture or even logically deduce the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit. Help me preach it how I feel it. When your back is up against the wall, I know for a fact that the Heidelberg Catechism or some theological treatise would not give you the power you need in your time of need. No, you plead and beg for God to show up and do something in your life. You ask for his power when the doctor reveals to you a bad medical report or when, when your loved one is hanging on by a thread. When life is defeating you or your marriage, it is the power of God manifested in the Holy Spirit that will get you through. God is what you need when chaos comes to your doorstep. Yes, friends, all the sophistication, the education, and the money, and the social status, it goes out the window when you have hit rock bottom. When the urge for sexual pleasure has, has mastered you, when the alcohol isn't just quite enough, when life has beat you down and you can't tell which way is up, you better call on a different power, a power that expels demons and raises folk from the dead. The Holy Spirit is what grants you the ability to hold on to God's unchanging hand. It is there where you find the healing and comfort for your soul. In the name of Jesus, Paul and Silas prayed, and the world did not like it. The Bible says Paul and Silas were dragged to city square and put in chains, not just because they're afraid of their God, but also because of their racial identity. I think Brother Paul is qualified enough to say what he says in chapter 6 of our text. He knows what it's like to be ridiculed and laughed at because of his faith. He knows what it's like to be tossed aside, beaten and bruised by rulers and authorities. He knows what it's like to be met with racism by the dominant culture. Paul knows firsthand the weightiness of worldly yokes. But he also knows about God's sustaining power that got him through. That is the mind behind his words in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Hold on. Remain in that struggle because God is about to do something bigger than your struggle. Oh, but, but, but Jared, this has, what does this have to do with me? This is not first century Rome. This is not way back when. This is 2021. Life is vastly different. You with your modern self is thinking, this is not my reality today, this Sunday, this moment. No one would dare put me in chains. Oh, not yet. There's coming a day 
Well, because of your faith, you very well may be put in chains. But I'm glad you asked anyway. The application for you and I in this moment of history is that because of the sin in the world, we will always live in a place filled with yokes. It may not be literal chains, but some of you have worn a yoke of fear your entire life. Fear of a family member or a parent that can't ever seem, that you can't ever seem to please. You, you work a job and your supervisors and your colleagues laugh at you because you're outdated, because you still believe in a God. You have lived under the master of shame and guilt because I'm an abuser. Sexual addiction, drug addiction has claimed your soul. And you continue to bow down to its power. For, for others, your yoke has been a past relationship, a divorce. Single parents wear a yoke of weariness and loneliness every single day. The 21st century yoke has taken on many faces, many personalities. It, it, it has morphed from the antiquity of slavery to more modern, attractive things. Oh, but it still is powerful. You know what's holding you down. You know the battles you fight. Don't get caught up and disregard Paul's words here. Sin has conquered you. It has made you slave, whether you want to believe it or not. It has left you defeated and worn out, bruised and wounded. And I believe that one of the main problems with the human heart and psyche is that you underestimate it. It's not something to play around with. It, it's not something to be taken granted for. It, but, but some of you have it all together. Your life is neatly in order and controlled. Being a Christian is, is your formula to success and to a perfect life. Don't be fooled. Sin is always lurking, always ready to devour, always ready to steal, kill, and destroy ready to wreak havoc in your life. And yes, that is a sober reality. And it ought to be, but, but, but I think I could take it a step further. See, I believe the problem with many of us in the church today is that it is one thing to acknowledge the sin in your own life. But sometimes we want to play coy with the sin that's happening in the world, in our neighborhoods. I'm just getting started. There are people in our city, in this very neighborhood, who suffer because they are poor. There are kids in the schools that I'm going into, going to jail, getting shot, losing fathers to prison because they have been subjugated to poor housing, lack of food, uh, uh, lack of medical attention. They are slaves to poverty because they were born on the wrong side of the tracks. Slaves to gains because they have no other family to turn to. Slaves to the judicial system because the odds are stacked against them. Because it's a system that makes money off their criminal record. It feels as though every week I hear about another teenager dying in the streets. Just yesterday there was a walk in our neighborhood because of gun violence of teens. 
And it seems as though no one bats an eye. Kids dying. Friends, there are masters of all kinds around you, and God is calling you to live in such a way that rises above it, but engages it too. That means living prophetically, speaking out prophetically. And what the world needs are Christians who imitate Jesus and not their politics, who speak out like Jesus when injustice incurs, and folk who know how to pray like Jesus. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, help me paint a better picture. We need some help. Daniel chapter 3. There those three are corralled in front of the great King Nebuchadnezzar. These three protested the laws of the land that said they must bow down and worship those Babylonian gods. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego already served a master. His name was Yahweh. That was their God. And, and, and what did their protest grant them? The king throwing them into a fiery furnace. I don't think it gets any more intense than that. They were thrown into a fire, a literal fire. But they remained tethered to God amidst their circumstance. Oh, and by the way, when they were thrown into that fire, their hands and feet were bound. Oh, it's getting good. But as the king's men looked inside, they saw all three men walking in the midst of the fire, along with an unknown fourth person. Help me, Holy Ghost. Y'all not hear me. They were walking in the fire with the fourth person. I'm trying to make it plain. I wish I knew how to say it another way. When the fire comes to your life, God does not leave you. He jumps in it with you. That's the message. When God is with you, you come out with no burns. You don't come out smelling like smoke. God met them in their faithful protesting and preserved them. And while he was saving those boys, he saved the king too. Oh yeah, King Nebuchadnezzar brought those boys out and when they came out, the king started praising God as well. This is the fruit of walking with God during tough times. While he is preserving you, he has others in mind. And Paul understood that many of those who lived under yokes in our passage had now become believing folk, and they were going to church. But they still had unbelieving masters. That is the idea of Paul's command to, to honor their masters. He knew God would take care of his people. He knew they would be fine. But in the midst of their struggle, he wanted to use those same weary folk to revolutionize their society, their city, their neighborhoods. People who are touched by grace are called to be conduits of grace, even while it's hard. That's it. But just in case you didn't catch any of that, there's one other suffering servant. There was this other great injustice that God had to solve too. It was between humanity and himself. You were on one side, God was on the other. There was a deep chasm between you and him and nothing you tried could get you to the other side. But God had had enough. He wanted you way too bad, so he sent his son. He told his son to put on skin then he told him to put on clothes. 
Then he told us Jesus to step down from his perch up there to our existence down here. Yes, he did. He did that for you. And then he told Jesus to get dirty. Dirty just like you. Then he said, take up a cross. Because on that cross is where I will make everything right again. And as the Son of Man was lifted up, me witness the greatest struggle of all time. Heaven and all its glory bound by nails. Oh, but he got up. Yes, he did. He got up so you wouldn't have to. He got up so you, wouldn't, so you could be with him again. He got up so you didn't have to suffer alone. He got up so you would be clean. He got up so you wouldn't have to suffer. You wouldn't have to wear the chains. He bore the chains. Three days later, he got up. That's the God we serve that knows what it feels like to be down and buried, that knows what it feels like to struggle, that knows what it feels like to hurt. I want a God that's going to know that exactly. And Jesus said, well, I'll do it for you. It may not feel like things will get better on this side. Oh, but there's another side, a side where justice will reign from heaven, a side where pain will be no more, a side where wrongs will be made right. I guess I am preaching to myself. That's okay. Freedom is yours in Jesus. And your neighborhood needs people who walk in that freedom. Help me, Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, would your, would your word just do its work? Be gracious to us. Would your spirit fall? And would we see our freedom in, in your son? Amen.